53 years ago, I went on strike with 3,000 other students and staff at the University of Queensland, and it was against the government support for apartheid South Africa. On Friday the 23rd of July 1971, police charged demonstrators outside the Tower Mill Hotel, which hospitalised some. Invaded, They invaded the Trades and Labour Council building, and at a meeting on the following morning, 3,000 people in the Queensland University Union Refectory voted to go on strike to oppose apartheid. The Trades and Labour Council called for a statewide stoppage and there was a demonstration in Roma Street Forum now called Emma Miller Place. The reason for this was the Springboks rugby union team was in Brisbane at the Tower Mill Motel to play some games of football in a team that excluded black South Africans. The team was a racist apartheid team supported by the South African government. So 50 years later, the South African government took a case against apartheid Israel to try to stop the genocide in Gaza. The case went before the International Court of Justice in The Hague, which has just handed down its provisional rulings. And that is essentially that Israel must stop the genocide. It did not call for a ceasefire, but nevertheless, a lot of people will take heed of the ruling and try to enforce it. The court has no power of enforcement and it is left to the people of the world to attempt to do so. And I'd like to really have a look at an article called Historical Reckoning Gone Haywire by Susan Naiman. It was published in the New York Review of Books. And I'd like to read out some parts of that, of, of that article. And it it, it bears witness to what has happened in another state which has a racist parts, past, that is uh, Germany. How do we remember the parts of our histories, it reads, that we'd rather forget? Repression and revision are always options. Few will go as far as Ron DeSantis, who has just recently pulled out of the presidential race. He recast American slavery as a form of trade school. But those who are honest will note that the ways their own narratives evolve. Highlighting successes while consigning failures to oblivion is as common as writing a resume. Nations are hardly less likely than individuals to embellish their pasts. Historians may toil in the archives seeking something like truth, but public memory is a political project whose relationship to fact is more precarious. So it's not surprising that until quite recently, American schoolchildren learned to recite the beginning of the Declaration of Independence without ever learning that the Foundation Fathers ignored African Americans' right to liberty and Native Americans' right to life. Public memory is designed to create identities that people are proud to uphold. Why teach school to children that American realities violated American ideals from the country's inception, which can only cause shame? The U.S. is hardly unique in preferring a heroic version of its past. Raise children on the Magna Carta and the Battle of Britain, and they'll be glad to share in the glory of the British nation. Why confuse them with stories of empire? French school children can be proud to become citizens of the country that gave the world the Declaration of the Rights of Man. Need they be told that it was disregarded a few years later, it inspired the revolution in Haiti, whose leader Toussaint Louverture was consigned to death in a French prison. When national failures are too big to ignore, individuals and nations turn to narratives of victimhood. We would have been heroes had history not run roughshod over our efforts. Some nations vacillate between heroic and victim-based memories. Poland and Israel come to mind. But until very recently, no nation ever based its historical narrative on having been a perpetrator of world-shattering crimes. Who would imagine that this might be a way to construct a national identity? Over the past few decades, Germany has done just that. It's easy to say it had no choice that the atrocities of World War II cried out for expiation. But 40 years, for 40 years, very few West Germans saw it that way. Instead, they cultivated a narrative 
that cast them as the war's prime victims. It was one that mirrored the tales of American defenders of the lost cause. We lost the war, our cities were in ruins, our men dead or languishing in prisoner of war camps. We were hungry, just barely alive, and on top of all that, the Yankees had the gall to blame us for starting the war. This litany is not entirely false, though it elides the larger perspective that makes such sentiments the dishonest, self-serving apologetics that they are. Yet to understand not only today's Germany, but the ways in which most states approach the hardest parts of their histories, you must know that the sense of victimhood was felt as deeply and as keenly in post-war Germany as anywhere else that endured the devastation of war. What better way to avoid responsibility for others' suffering than to focus on one's own? On occasion, Germans knew they ought to do something to get into the world's good graces. Yet the reparations initially paid to Holocaust survivors and the State of Israel were not only grudging and meagre, they were also accompanied by the assumption that the bill was thereby settled. There would be no need for further acts of remorse. West Germans could leave the years 1933 to 1945 out of their history and, and keep Nazis in their civil service jobs so that schools, universities and government could be staffed by those who were much keener on recalling the bombing of Dresden than the mass murder at Auschwitz. Few outside Germany knew how unwilling the country initially was to acknowledge its crimes. What most saw was West German's Chancellor Willy Brandt kneeling in shame before the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial in 1970. Brandt was doing penance for his compatriots, though he himself had nothing to atone for. For, having left Germany for exile in Norway months after the Nazis took power. To outsiders, his gesture made perfect sense, but most of his fellow citizens were appalled by his apology tour. Their opposition would contribute to the brevity of his term as Chancellor. At that time, few West Germans were eager to recognise, much less atone for, their, their nation's crimes. But slowly and fitfully, they began to do so. East Germany was different. Pastor Martin Neymoller's lines were printed on posters all over the world. First they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. It's a nice statement of idea that if you don't stand up for everyone's civil rights, no one may be there to stand up for yours. But it is often forgotten that Neymar's lines are also a statement of historical fact. First, they did come for the communists, and so on. As a result, most of East Germany's political and cultural leaders were committed anti-fascists. Some had suffered in Nazi concentration camps. Others fled for their lives. Many, like the writers Bertolt Brecht, Stefan Nahum, and Anna Sergers, returned from exile eager to build an anti-fascist Germany from the ruins. When the repressions of state socialism were too much to bear, some, like the philosopher Ernest Bloch, left again for the West. Still, East Germany did more at every level to denazify than its anti-communist neighbour in the West. More Nazis were tried, sentenced and removed from office. Memorials were constructed to victims. A new national anthem was composed. In East Germany, school lessons, lesson plans, films and television programs emphasised the evil of Nazism. In West Germany, education and popular culture avoided the subject entirely. In the West, May 8, the day the war ended, was called the Day of Unconditional Capitulation. In the East, it was celebrated as a day of liberation. Of course, the East German government instrumentalised its anti-fascist narrative, which was incomplete and tangentious. But its tenor was one the rest of the world could share. Nazis were bad, defeating them was good, was never in doubt on one side of the wall. In the West, by contrast, that simple claim was drenched in ambivalence. East Germany's repeated references to the number of Nazis in West German government was dismissed as communist propaganda. 
But West Germans knew it was also true. It was one source of the pressure that ultimately pushed West Germany to get more serious about denazifying itself after the US, Great Britain seized their own feckless denazification programs when the Cold War heated up. Former Nazis were too valuable in confronting Soviet Union to languish in jail or obscurity. But most of the hard work of facing Nazi past was driven by West German intellectuals, church groups and students, whose outrage at their Nazi parents and teachers made the 1960s in Berlin rather more violent than they were in Berkeley. Together, those groups pushed civil society to a new self-understanding. By 1985, when President Richard von Weissacker gave a speech commemorating the 40th anniversary of the war's end, there was a nascent, nascent consensus. Germans had suffered, but others had suffered more, and their suffering was Germany's fault. This insight was remarkable only for the fact it was so long in coming, but Weissacker's speech promoted a new self-image. Forget the shame of the Treaty of Versailles, the defeat at Stalingrad and the Potsdam Conference. Germans should no longer view themselves as 20th century victims. Their collective identity was now historically unique. Germans would see themselves first and foremost as perpetrators. A number of books, including one of my own, Learning from the Germans, have traced the process by which Germans' transformation transformed themselves from victims to perpetrators. But lately, it's become fashionable to claim that no genuine transformation took place. The many annual rituals and commemorations of Nazi crimes have been dismissed as memory theatre. Critics charge that personal discussions of guilt and shame rarely penetrate family circles, where most prefer to think that whatever the neighbours may have done, Grandpa was no Nazi. Besides, isn't Germany still a racist society? And why has it focused on Nazi crimes while ignoring the early 20th century genocide of Nama and Herero peoples in Germany's colony in southwest Africa, present-day Namibia. There are answers to all these questions, which are usually raised by those too young to remember the outright anti-Semitism and other forms of, of racism still publicly acceptable in the 1980s in Germany. Those who haven't lived through epochal change can hardly view its results as groundbreaking. The results become the new norm. But those of us who remember the days when Germans shamelessly repeated anti-Semitic cliches while viewing themselves as victims notice dramatic differences. We also know that for many, the desire to atone for the crimes of their forebears is no, not a matter of theatre, but genuine, albeit often helpless. The alacrity with which Germany responded to recent demands to face colonial crimes shows that unlike Britain or France, it has developed a practice of historical reckoning that may have begun with Nazi crimes, but can be adapted to others. Those who argue that the reparations for genocide in Namibia or the restoration of the stolen art to Nigeria are too little, too late, should ask themselves what Spain has done to acknowledge, let alone expiate, the bloodiest colonial regimes in, in history. No native German would raise this question, at least not in public. Though, a number of recent articles have argued that Germany can no longer consider itself the world champion of remembrance. I never met a German who considered herself in such terms, or indeed was prepared to praise the process at all. On the contrary, Germans are their own fiercest critics, the ones most eager to tell you that anti-Semitism still runs rampant. It's a testament to the sincerity of their efforts at historical reckoning. But as a German saying reminds us, the opposite of good is good intention. So it isn't the absence of historical reckoning with the Holocaust, but a twist on it that has led today's Germany into a philo-Semitic McCarthyism that threatens to throttle the country's rich cultural life. In the past three years, German historical reckoning has gone haywire as the determination to root out anti-Semitism has shifted from vigilance to hysteria. Every application for grants or jobs is scrutinised for signs. Allegations of anti-Semitism, regardless of the source, serve as grounds for revoking prizes and job contracts or cancelling exhibitions and performances. 
Although police statistics show that over 90% of anti-Semitic hate crimes are committed by white right-wing Germans, Muslims and people of colour have been the most heavily targeted by media campaigns that have cost several their jobs. The most astonishing feature of this philo-Semitic fury is the way it has been used to attack Jews in Germany, including some descendants of Holocaust survivors and the estimated 40,000 Israelis now living there. In the name of atoning for the crimes of their parents and grandparents, non-Jewish Germans publicly accuse Jewish writers, artists and activists of anti-Semitism. This makes tenuous sense given that the main thing decades of historical reckoning have taught the Germans about Jews is they were our victims. As the German-Jewish author Nili Poloshek recently wrote, only someone who has suffered and lost at least half their family in the Holocaust is considered a real Jew. One can go a step further. For Germans, a real Jew is someone whose life is constituted by the Holocaust. Though it's now been a century since the influential Jewish historian Salo Baron decried what he called the lacrimose conception of Jewish history as a never-ending tale of woe, it's the conception to which most Germans hold fast. Hence Jews whose lives are now not focused on Jewish suffering are at best puzzling, puzzling and at worst slightly suspect. This ignores the entire tradition of Jewish universalism, which is as old as the biblical verse that enjoins Jews to remember that we were strangers in Egypt and therefore have a special obligation to care for those who are strangers anywhere, even if they happen to be Palestinian. Jewish universalism is the answer to Jewish nationalism. It's the tradition of prophets as well as the German-Jewish luminaries from Moses, Mendelssohn, to Karl Marx, Albert Einstein, to Hannah Arendt, whose absence from the Federal Republic is regularly bemoaned. It's easier to put dead Jews' images on postage stamps than to explore the ideas that made them famous. And Jews who refuse to... For foreground Jewish suffering do not fit into the post-war lesson plan. According to German logic, such Jews could minimise the importance of the Holocaust and thereby the Germans' own guilt. Angela Merkel's 2008 declaration that the security of Israel was part of German Stadtratzen, national interest, was too vague to be a statement of foreign policy. Did it imply that Germany would send troops to the Golan if Israel were attacked? Such questions were never answered, but her statement expressed an emotion that previous decades had crystallised. It is not uncommon for Germans to refer to their country as Tata nation, perpetrator nation. It seems to follow that Jews constitute an eternal victim nation. In that case, the only way to wash away the sins of the fathers is to support the potential victim Uber Alis. If this presents a problem for any Jew in particular, it's infinitely more troubling when thinking about Israel, the state that claims to represent them. More than half a century has gone by since that high-tech nuclear power could pass as little David with a slingshot. But Germany's per per pervasive commitment to historical reckoning has left it with one certainty. We murdered millions of Jews. Any issue involving Jews at all will be read through the lens of the German past. As a result, a country governed by a centre-left coalition has a foreign policy somewhere to the right of APAC. In 2019, the German parliament passed a resolution declaring that anyone who supported the boycott, divestment and sanctions, BDS movement, or its goals were, was anti-Semitic and hence ineligible to appear at any state function, theatre, museum, lecture hall or other cultural institution. BDS is a Palestinian-led movement founded in 2005 to oppose the occupation of Palestine by substituting boycotts for terrorism. When the resolution was passed, it had a marginal presence in Germany, where most people still need to be told what the initials represent. But since almost every cultural institution in Germany reserves some form of state funding, this amounted to a virtual ban on anyone suspected of proximity to BDS, a concept left entirely murky. There is no doubt 
that some BDS supporters are anti-Semitic, but rather than attempt to determine the extent of a person's involvement in the loosely organised movement, Germans find it sufficient to refer to their own tarnished history. In 1933, the Nazis called for a boycott of Jewish businesses, one of the first discriminatory steps that led to the Yellow Star and later to Auschwitz. Ergo, proximity to anyone who contemplates any form of boycott against Israel is advocating the first in a series of actions that could end in the gas chamber. Were this chain of reasoning made explicit, its flaws would be apparent, but reason is not much in evidence in current discussions. In Berlin, the word apartheid can get you cancelled faster than the N-word when you get, uh, which will get you cancelled in New York. Unlike the N-word, apartheid is not a racist slur, but a technical juridical term denoting different legal systems for different peoples. In Israel and the United States, legal scholars are still debating whether it applies to those parts of Israel that are within the green line, but most agree that it's perfectly accurate description of the conditions in the West Bank. Israeli human rights organizations, along with Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, have argued for the use of the term. When Amnesty released Israel's apartheid against Palestinians in 2022, however, its German chapter publicly distanced itself from the report and refused to discuss it. Germans who recoil at the term are not thinking of the occupied territories which few of them have ever seen. The word apartheid makes some Germans think of the boycott of South Africa. More often, they think of Nazi posters on Jewish shop windows, don't buy from Jews. Frozen images of past shame prevent them from thinking clearly about the present, even when former Israeli ambassadors, outraged over the recent legislation limiting the authority of the country's Supreme Court, urge that there are German colleagues that the time for boycott has come. The German government should at least stop inviting Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his cabinet and holding joint events that they have had in the past. It is rare that such appeals reach the German media since detailed reporting from Israel is inversely proportional to the country's place in German psyche. During the brief but deadly Israeli war on Gaza in 2021, the New York Times printed photos of 67 children killed there on the front page. The German press, by contrast, was captivated by demonstrations against the war in Gleschenskirchen, in which some predominantly Muslim citizens shouted anti-Semitic obscenities. Where Jews are at issue, Germans think first of themselves. Is there still anti-Semitism in Germany? So it's unsurprising that in the weeks after Israel elected the most right-wing government in its history, German media were focused on alleged anti-Semitism in Munich. In November 2022, two Jewish university students were charged that a play was anti-Semitic. Rejecting the director's offer to host another performance at which the alleged anti-Semitism could be discussed, the students threatened to demand that the city withdraw the Metropole Theatre's funding if the play wasn't cancelled. It was duly cancelled and a debate began. The play in question, Birds, was written by the Lebanese-Canadian author Waji Murad in consultation with the distinguished historian Natalie Zeman Davis, who is Jewish. It tells the story of two graduate students who fall in love in Columbia University Library. What makes them a modern Romeo and Juliet is the fact that Eaton, a young geneticist, is descended from Holocaust survivors, while Wahida, a young historian, describes herself as an Arab of Moroccan descent. The story of their romance becomes the story of family trauma. The young man's father, who is vociferously hostile to any liaison between Jew and Arab, turns out to be an adopted Palestinian. The ending echoes Nathan the Wise, Gotthold Ephraim's Lessing's 18th century plea for religious tolerance, which was the first play occupying the Red Army, allowing to be performed in Berlin's bombed-out ruins after the war. How could this story be construed as anti-Semitism, too dangerous to be performed on a German stage? The government-funded anti-Semitism watchdog, Rias, 
R-I-A-S, provided an explanation. The play it charged depicts Jews with negative characteristics. It shows Jews who are neurotic and Jews who are racist. It portrays a Holocaust survivor who makes a joke about surviving. On such grounds, Rias would presumably ban Philip Roth, Woody Allen, and even Heinrich Hein. But as the organization's critique becomes more detailed, its methods become clearer. The fact that the Jewish student is a geneticist is anti-Semitic because the combination of genetics, Jews and Germany, makes one think of Nazi euthanasia and the Shoah. His father's remark that he wouldn't like to be a Palestinian recalls Hermann Goring's statement after Kristallnacht, I wouldn't like to be a Jew in Germany today. The report continues for 17 single-space pages, but the form of the critique is clear. If a claim about Jews makes a German think about Nazis, it is ipso facto anti-Semitic. The trouble is, almost any claim about Jews makes Germans think about Nazis. Davis wrote an article refuting the charges of anti-Semitism and concluding with the suggestion that the critics have a restrictive, frightened and heartless view of what it is to be a Jew. Rias responded by calling her a BDS activist, a charge that had no basis at all. <coughs> the debate continued for months as some endorsed Davis's plea to let the play be performed so that audiences could judge its content for themselves and others urged that artistic freedom should never take precedence over fighting anti-Semitism. This begs the question of whether the play is actually anti-Semitic, but the allegation is enough in today's Germany to put fear in the heart of anyone whose work is publicly funded. After much deliberation, the Metropole Theatre decided to excise a few of the lines that had provoked the critics and reprise the play. After all, theatres regularly cut parts of plays they produce how else could you get an audience to sit through King Lear? Moorewide ended the debate by insisting that the theatre produced the play in its entirety or not at all. It was not performed. But the oddest element of the story did not come into the discussion. Three years before the scandal erupted, Birds was playing to enthusiastic reviews in 14 German cities after celebrated performances in France, Canada and Israel. Drama of the Hour is the title of the 2019 German Review, which assures readers that the play will remain on stage for many years since it contains everything a director would wish for. In 2020, the German state of Baden-Württemberg awarded Muad its first European drama prize. Some recent developments in German politics explains how the culture changed so quickly. In 2017, the alternative for Germany, AFD, became the first far-right party since the war to receive enough votes to enter Parliament. It was driven by anti-immigrant fervour that drives other far-right parties in Europe and America as well, as, as one very German issue. AFD leaders criticised the historical reckoning now central to civic education as guilt cult. Seen in the light of German's history, they declared the 12-year Nazi reign was a speck of birdshit. Decent Germans were understandably alarmed. In its alarmed, the government made a series of errors. The first was to establish a federal office to combat anti-Semitism, which was quickly followed by officers at the state level. None of the commissioners was raised as a Jew, though one converted soon after his appointment. Most have little understanding of Jewish complexity or tradition. The federal commissioner was photographed marching with one of the Christian Zionist groups whose mission is to ignite an apocalypse in the promised land that will either convert or obliterate the Jews. His participation was innocent. He simply saw an Israeli flag and assumed he should join. To compensate for their unfamiliarity, the commissioners rely on two sources for information about Jews, Israelis and Palestinians, the Israeli Embassy and the Central Council for Jews in Germany, one of the more right-leaning Jewish organisations in the world. Even more importantly, they rely on what they've learned from Germans' decades-long historical reckoning, which views all matters Jewish through the prism of German guilt. That makes Germany vulnerable to all kinds of manipulation, and its second great era came in 2019, inspired by Steve Bannon, who, with whom AFD leaders meet regularly, the radical right adopted a strategy now common to right-wing parties from Dallas to Delhi. Racism towards other groups can be covered up 
by, by denouncing anti-Semitism and swearing support for any Israeli government. After all, anyone who does that can't be a Nazi. In 2020, Netanyahu's oldest son, Yehia, appeared as the poster boy for the AFD advertisement calling the European Union an evil globalist organisation that hoped that Europe will return to be free, democratic and Christian. To further refute suspicions of neo-Nazism, the AFD began trying to recruit Jews in Germany, including me, with tales of murderous Muslims. Far more successful was their 2019 proposal to Parliament. BDS should be banned from it from Germany. As a political strategy, it was brilliant, for it left the other German parties aghast. When the AFD entered Parliament, they declined to be seated next to its deputies and were in principle against anything the AFD had proposed. Yet, how could they allow the AFD to outshine them in philo-Semitism? Their solution was to unite in support of the resolution banning anyone close to BDS from speaking, exhibiting or performing in state-funded venues. Unlike the AFD's resolution, this slightly different one <laughs> seemed compatible with constitutional protections for freedom of speech, though every court in which it was challenged declared it un unconstitutional. Unconstitutional or not, the resolution is regularly deployed. Its first victim was the internationally renowned Judaic scholar Peter Schaefer, who was pushed to resign as director of Berlin's Jewish Museum after Netanyahu complained about him to Germany's Minister of Culture. More recently, it was used to fire Matondo Castlo, a 29-year-old German of Congolese origin, from his job as the host of a children's TV show. His crime? Attending an ecological festival for children in the West Bank. The more conditions worsen in Israel-Palestine, the more ardently German media seek instances of anti-Semitism to condemn. In July 2023, Netanyahu's successful undermining of the Israeli justice system was duly, albeit briefly, noted in the major newspapers. But what really filled the German airwaves in the weeks that followed were reports about what should have been at most a minor scandal. When a young German journalist, Fabian Wolf, acknowledged that contrary to what he'd assumed, he was not Jewish. There's nothing more German than the wish to be Jewish. Shortly after the war, many Nazis invented Jewish identities to avoid detection. As brilliantly described in Edgar Helsenrath's satirical novel, The Nazi and the Barber, 1971. More, more often, the wish was less a matter of opportunism than of longing. Who wouldn't rather have victim blood than perpetrator blood in their veins? Wolf's indication, inclination to believe his late mother's vague references to supposed Jewish ancestors was hardly unusual. There are Germans who have become synagogue leaders and even rabbis by doing something similar. Wolf's fatal flaw for the German media was to become a left-wing Jewish universalist criticising the Israeli government and writing essays about Tony Judd and it Isaac Deutscher. The fury with which every major newspaper attacked him had nothing to do with the fact that he had imagined himself to have Jewish ancestry, like many a German before him, but with the fact that he had criticised Israel policies from this position. For Germans, expressing indignation over German misdeeds is easy. Those who tempted, those tempted to indignation over Jewish ones will fear that the rage is avatistic more born of anti-Semitism they must have inherited, though it's hardly compatible with their own theories of communicative action. Germany's grand old philosopher Jürgen Habermas has said it in print, Germans of his generation have no, have no right to criticise Israel, which has not exactly encouraged young Germans to speak out. Emily Dish Becker and the Jewish director of the German branch of Diaspora Alliance a small NGO devoted to fighting anti-Semitism as well as the misuse of anti-Semitism allegations, told me that the most Germans cannot bear to face the truth. They wanted Israel to be the happy ending to the Holocaust. They can't accept the fact that there is no happy ending. <clears throat> the cases I have described are by no means exhaustive, simply exemplary. A new example of philo-Semitic repression reaches me every other week. Diaspora Alliance has verified 59 cancellations of discussions, performance, exhibitions or jobs in the past two years. What can't be verified 
are those that stay behind closed doors. Juries, juries would violate their commitments to confidentiality if they revealed how often someone was denied a prize or a job because of allegations of anti-Semitism by one third-rate blogger or another, or another that were never proved. I know of four cases involving prominent figures that never became public, nor can one count the numbers of those who self-censor before they are charged, or of those who ran into trouble but refrained from going public for fear of further reprisal. While threats to slash funding for left-leaning groups continue, another kind of scandal began to in late August 2023, when the Sudanese Zeitung revealed that Bavaria's Lieutenant Governor and Finance Minister Hubert Awanga was connected to a venomous pamphlet in 1987 when he was a teenager. It featured a mock competition to find the greatest traitor to the fatherland, with the first prize being a free flight up the chimney at Auschwitz, the second being a lifelong stay in a mass grave, and so on. Whether Awanga wrote the pamphlet himself, copies of which were found in his school bag, or it was written by his older brother, as was claimed, may never be known. Since his answers to subsequent questions were so evasive that few took them seriously, national leaders of left-leaning parties called for his resignation. Had Awanga expressed genuine shame or regret, the affair would have ended quietly. Who among us repents nothing? They did at the age of 17. But even worse than the flyer was Alwanga's reaction. Painting himself as both victim and, and uh, of the liberal press and a rebel against what supportive politicians called a collective guilt neurosis and a poisonous moralism, he demanded he remained defiant, even as former classmates reported further examples of his use of Nazi language and symbols in high school. Dear Zeit, compared his reactions to the charges against him to how Donald Trump has behaved. Awanga's small party, free voters, quickly gained 5% in the polls preceding the upcoming state elections in October. Unlike Matondo Castlo, the Congolese German who lost his job after visiting Palestinian Children's Festival, or Naomi El Hassan, a Palestinian German doctor whose appointment to host a science television show was cancelled despite her convincing expression of regret for attending an Islamist demonstration nine years earlier. Awanga kept his position, and although plenty of German politicians and journalists were outraged by the Bavarian government's refusal to dismiss him, others argued that it was the only option. Political martyrdom would only create more support for his increasingly right-wing leading party. Enough with the guilt business is the kind of instinct that draws votes and not just in Bavaria. A Facebook photo of the governor holding a small sign, we remember, was resurrected. Posted in English, it is a dog whistle for his voters. We know how to speak, how we must speak to the foreigners, but we know what we think in Bavaria. Germany's federal anti-Semitism commissioner proposed that Awanga make a visit to the Dachau memorial site. The only source of comfort in this wretched affair was the fact that the people who run the site told him not to come. What can we learn from the Germans' efforts to confront their country's criminal history? Four years ago, I believed they could serve as a model for other countries trying to face their own failures and working to construct more honest versions of their history. The model was never perfect, but no nation has ever tried anything like it. How could the Germans hope to get everything right? The past three years, however, have left me repeating a line my sorely missed friend and colleague Tony Judd liked to quote, When the facts change, I change my mind. What can you do, sir? The facts have changed so dramatically in Germany that I now suspect the most we can learn from it is a warning. To be sure, only the AFD would suggest returning to the days before Germans acknowledged that they were perpetrators of World War II. Just as only white supremacists hang on to the narrative of the Confederacy as a hapless victim. But since the overdue recognition that America should face the dark sides of its history took hold, many voices have suggested that there are nothing but dark sides to American history. There's no question that the right-wing campaign to ban from American classrooms anything that might cause discomfort is dangerous. 
Anyone should be proud to belong to a nation whose heroes include Martin Luther King Jr. and Toni Morrison, two writers whom several school boards have banned. Along with the history of profound injustice, the United States has a long history of people who fought against it. Without examples of brave men and women who work together to make progress towards justice, we will never have the will to make more. Those who cannot acknowledge past histories of progress are doomed to cynicism or resignation. Portraying all of American history as an engine of white supremacy, or all of the German history as irrevocably poisoned by anti-Semitism, is bound to provoke backlash, and it already has. But even if it didn't, it wouldn't be true, and isn't the demand and isn't the demand for historical reckoning itself a demand for truth. This was brought home to me by Brian Stevenson, whom I interviewed while writing Learning from the Germans. Stevenson is the founder of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, commonly known as the Lynching Memorial, conceived after he witnessed examples of Germany's historical reckoning. When I visited him in Montgomery, he told me, among other things, you should be proud of those white southerners in Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama who argued in the 1850s that slavery was wrong. There were white southerners in 1920s who tried to stop lynchings and you don't know their names. Stevenson thinks that commemorating those names would help the US turn from shame to pride. We could actually claim a heritage rooted in courage and defiance of doing what is easy and preferring what is right. We can make that norm we can we, we can make that norm we want to celebrate our southern history and heritage culture. Recalling that visit some years later makes me think of those Germans whose narrative of their history is so unremittingly bleak that they refuse to recognise any progress in it and insist that their country's attempt to reckon with its crimes has been a specious farce. This simplistic thesis fails to identify the flaws of German memory culture. Part of the problem is structural. When citizens demand that their nations face their racist pasts, which are said to ensure the racist policies persist, they seek a change in national consciousness. And when they are largely successful, as they have been in Germany, they want the change in consciousness to lead to change in policies. Dates and events that were once gladly forgotten are now enshrined as official memorial days. Kristallnacht, the 1944 attempt to assassinate Hitler, the liberation of Auschwitz, and other milestones are regularly commemorated, some at the federal and others at the state level, featuring solemn politicians wearing yarmulkes, an ageing Holocaust survivor, and at least one Kleishma musician. But government policies are government policies. They aren't sensitive to subtlety, if not exactly based on algorithms. They run the danger of being based on formulas that easily become ossified and are and automatic. That's what happened to GDR's doctrine of anti-fascism. One result of the formulaic approach to historical reckoning is the tendency to view groups that have been oppressed as they spoke in a monolithic voice forever fixed on their own oppression. If Germany mis considers only those Jews who focus on anti-Semitism to be an authentic, America is in danger of viewing only those people of colour who view racism as the source of every evil to be genuine. The lachrymose conception of Jewish history isn't far from the Afro-pessimist view of history propounded by writers like Frank B. Wilderson III. Is there a way to acknowledge racism and anti-Semitism without reducing those, experience, those whose experience them to eternal victims? Ultimately, it should be possible to examine historical crimes with, with care and nuance though we know these qualities are in short supply. One lesson Americans can learn from Germans is how badly things can go wrong when care and nuance are missing. The past few years have seen an enormous reckoning with America's racial history, yet the reckoning with its political history has not yet begun, despite the efforts of professional historians. The systematic and violent suppression of the labor movement that outlived McCarthyism left Americans with fewer rights than the citizens of any comparab comparably wealthy democracy. Examining America's forgotten political history is a crucial part of working towards a future in which the pursuit of happiness might become a reality for all. But for that, we need to preserve a notion of progress 
along with the knowledge that it rarely proceeds in a straight line. That uh, article was written in October 2023, uh, just before the um, genocide began in, in Gaza, so it does not include that. I'm thinking I'll go out now uh, with a song, and that song is The Drones' 16 Straws. One Sunday morning, while I was out walking by the Brisbane's waters, I chanced to stray. And there I found a prisoner laid half in the water. He seen me coming and he began to say, I was a native of Aaron's Island before I was brought to this terrible place. They dragged me away from my wife and newborn and my ailing parents. I've been a prisoner at Port Macquarie at Norfolk Island then in New Plains at Castle Hill and cursed Tower and Gabby at all of these settlements I've worked in chains but all of the places of condemnation in each penal station of New South Wales to Morton Bay I found no equal the tyranny there makes all the rest O'Brien, the defender from Ulster, he'd left Ireland burning and came here for the wake. Well, he was a schemer, a Jacobite nightmare. He would not be broken, but he became displaced. And the Jew had one hand, he was a violent man. He'd won the 20 pound irons Since before time began Just before the dawn broke His starvation awoke He picked the corn from the filth He found laying around And there ain't no walls at all So remote is the north The Commandant Logan He was a devil for sure Chief Flogger was mad I heard a prison guard say He washed his lash in a bucket And then drink the remains Well I heard a rumour In the barracks one night That you and O'Brien They had fashioned a knife They planned to kill Logan my will was broke, my brain reeled with a secret And the next day I spoke, they put me back on the game With no word of my actions, O'Brien and the Jew Got three hundred lashes, O'Brien came off a triangle With exposed shoulder blades, his skin never healed he turned morbid and strange He was out on the rug gang Just to dig in a hole I was struggling with conscience My nerves had dissolved To fifteen pair eyes O'Brien proposed Shall we go to the gallows And be done with our woes the game that plays all I'm asking will draw 16 straws and then nothing is won why should we grasp at the straws of our lives when we're only condemned by our will to survive 16
15 straws We didn't draw I picked the long one The Jew picked the short He said pray God forgives you At least make it quick 14 pairs of eyes Watch me pound in a shiv For his heart Not stopping the blood. Then O'Brien said, Friends, on the scaffold this ends, but it's a long way to Brisbane, and we're dangerous men. Well, Logan was wild, and we filled in with bile. He seen the Catholic dodge. Descended his powers, not that of the kings or the judge down the river. We was happy to swing, we were marched through the scrub, off to Brisbane for trial, and chained into a whaler. We set off at Lot Tide with six nervous marines and six Enfield rifles. The ice end of the world An indifferent blue sky Well I turned a torpor In the stern, in the sun But I gather the others muster Come on, don't I walk, breathe and smoke In a chaos of limbs A red coat squirting blood Through a hole in his chin a volley of fire In my general direction There was panic and shots And the smell of powder burning Well I threw a rifle Up over the side It was dark by the water But I seen the shore lights Crash down in the back The wrong side of the guns Getting scorched by the powder I thought surely I'm done I seen ghoulish things Men shot limb from limb O'Brien was dead And there was pieces of him Well I tore off my shirt I was quite badly burned My eyes poor like wellsprings That was swollen and hurt I'm not sure who survived My whole trunk was on fire But they broke the chains off me And I bailed over the side Tale. I'd heard none of the friends He'd left in a while I'd just seen a paper And I had to explain How his commandant Logan Had died just today They set out behind you They was out hunting game When he startled some natives Took a spear through his brain Then the prisoner said good I heard someone in boots I turned round and that's when The Royal Marines came 